Welcome to Tax Break, a podcast on the tax law brought to you by the lawyers at Miller & Chevalier. I'm Steve Dixon, a tax litigator with Miller & Chevalier. As usual, I'm joined by my colleague, international tax and tax policy expert, Lauren Pons. And today we're welcoming our colleague, international tax and transfer pricing expert, Rocco Famia. Welcome to the podcast, Rocco. Hi, Steve. Hi, Lauren. Happy to be here. So today we're going to discuss the foreign tax credit regs that came out this fall. And first, we want to pick up on a thread that from one of our earlier podcasts about the FIDI regulations and close the loop there. And then we want to go in depth with Rocco about the regulations proposed in this package that govern, in particular, those that govern whether a foreign levy qualifies as a foreign income tax for foreign tax credit purposes under sections 901 and 903. The idea behind Tax Break, as we always like to say, is to provide listeners with some perspective on select tax issues that we think are interesting. We want to go deeper than what's in the tax press, but stay sufficiently high level so our listeners can follow along without a copy of the regulations in front of them. As always, first, a disclaimer, Tax Break is not intended to be legal advice, and you can't rely on it as legal advice. Its content reflects only the thoughts and opinions of its hosts and guests. So welcome to the podcast, Rocco. Happy to be here. Um, Lauren, I did want to start out, since we're talking about these foreign tax credit regs, you'll recall back in the summertime, we had a podcast with uh, Jeff Tebbs from, from Lockheed Martin and discussed the, the FIDI regulations. And something that we talked about then was that uh, you know, the FIDI regulations effectively punted on how uh, R&E expenses would be allocated for purposes of FIDI, um, presumably so, so that they, presumably to these regs so that they would be allocated consistently for foreign tax credit and FIDI purposes. Uh, and one big question that we that was hanging out there was whether the regs would allow for the use of exclusive apportionment. So Lauren, you want to tell our listeners how how that <laughs> played out for the taxpayers? Sure. For those who may still be in suspense, um, <laughs> the the exclusive apportionment request was was really a taxpayer favorable rule, such that um, some of the RNE expense, fifty percent of the RNE expense, um, would have been allocated to the place where it was incurred on a geographic basis, and in a lot of cases, that's the U.S. And so people were hoping that that rule would apply. However, the final reg said uh, no. So exclusive apportionment is not um, available in the context of the 250 deduction for FIDI purposes. And Rocco, there, there was something sort of unique about the way in which Treasury addressed this decision in, its, in, its, in these, FIT, these uh, FTC regs. What was that? Yeah, the the preamble of the final foreign tax credit regulations uh, referenced uh, the U.S. position with respect to FIDI at the OECD uh, before the Forum on Harmful Tax Practices um, and also potential defense of FIDI at the WTO. And so I think the the justification put forward uh, by the preamble is that the FIDI regime is a neutral regime. It's intended to equalize uh, the tax consequences of operating uh, in the U.S. versus operating outside of the U.S. through 
a foreign subsidiary and to ensure that intangible income related to the exploitation of foreign markets in either business model is taxed in the same way and in a neutral way. And that seems to be very important uh, to the U.S. Treasury uh, as it has its eyes on uh, potential future challenges to the FIDI regime. And just for our listeners, what, what what would the nature of those challenges be to the FIDI regime? Well, I, I think the nature of those challenges would be to characterize the FIDI regime as something like uh, a subsidy for exports. And so some incentive that's provided not through the U.S. trade laws, but through the U.S. tax law to incentivize experts or exports. And I think the retort to that uh, claim would be, well, no, um, the U.S. taxes U.S. companies effectively on a worldwide basis, including the foreign operations of those companies through the guilty regime. And really the only purpose of the FIDI regime, because the guilty regime applies at a rate that's lower than the generally applicable U.S. corporate tax rate. The only purpose of the FIDI regime is to equalize those two so that a company is not incentivized, the U.S.-based company is not incentivized to transfer its IP offshore and operate offshore versus operating in the U.S. Great, thanks. So that so that's our little uh, catch up on <laughs> on the on exclusive apportionment. Uh, let's turn now to to what I think we all, we all agree. I would imagine is the is the most interesting and and uh, juiciest part of these foreign tax credit regs, which are I think quite quite expansive <laughs> in terms of the entire package. But we want to focus on one piece here, and that piece is is creditability. So as I sh- I'm sure most of our listeners know, Section 901 permits a credit for foreign income taxes. And the regs proposed here weigh in on the question of what constitutes a foreign income tax and arguably portend some fairly significant changes in this regard to the law. Rocco, could you kick us off by telling us a little bit, you know, giving us kind of a general overview on the existing law of how to determine whether a foreign levy, which is what we use to not to not beg the question, we call it a foreign levy. How do you determine whether a foreign levy is a foreign income tax for FTC purposes? Sure. Uh, so for purposes of 901, I guess the first question is whether it's a tax. And uh, there are rules around what what constitutes a tax. So a compulsory payment to a foreign government uh, that is uh, that has imposed an obligation to make the payment under its taxing laws. And uh, so the payment uh, can't be in excess of what's uh, legally owed and can't be in exchange for some specific benefit. And then the second item is it has to be an income tax. And uh, since the early 1980s, the regulations have defined uh, uh, you know, what it means to be an income tax with reference loosely to U.S. law. And so the predominant um, character of the tax must be an income tax in the U.S. sense. It must be a tax 
that's imposed um, on net income. And that net income must be determined under reasonable realization principles like our tax. Um, and by taking the gross receipts that are realized and reducing them by normal business deductions. And so a, a tax that um, sort of is likely to reach net income in the circumstances in which it generally applies is considered a uh, uh, a tax whose predominant character is an income tax in the U.S. sense. So, Lauren, what what if any reason would Treasury have to sort of wade into this uh, what sounds like a, a long-standing regime for for <laughs> deciding when 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 a levy becomes a foreign income tax? Why would Treasury be wading into that here in these in these regulations? Well, in this context, with regard to some of the modifications to the um, net gain requirement, which is what Rocco just summarized, those kind of three components, realization, gross receipts, cost recovery, uh, was, some of it was to update existing case law uh, principles. Some of it was they noted that the regs um, for 901 were issued in 1983. There were some in inconsistencies with uh, articulations of the rules in those regulations as opposed to prior iterations of regulations um, um, amplifying these, these statutory rules. So I think kind of to bring everything forward and also as we'll see later, there is some weaving in of a new jurisdictional nexus requirement into these tests. And so I think it's the overarching um, themes were one, updating the rules, but also using this as an opportunity to inject some new concepts that they wanted to articulate as well. And so were there, were these concepts, these jurisdictional nexus concepts, were they either explicit or implicit in, in law previously? As, as articulated in the proposed regs, uh, they are well, they are new. Uh, I mean, we've yeah. always had nexus concepts. You know, there is a nexus concept. Um, the requirement that there be a jurisdictional nexus other than serving customers remotely, some other concept that doesn't suggest a a presence or or workers or some kind of interaction with the market that's being served. That that is a new new concept in the regulations. And, yeah. and why would go ahead, Rocco? Well, I was just going <laughs> to add. I think it's important to put 901 uh, in context. And so, the purpose of the foreign tax credit, right, is to to relieve double taxation and so to permit. Uh, companies operating outside of the U.S. or earning income outside of the U.S. to credit foreign taxes against the U.S. taxes that would otherwise be imposed on that income. But the statute, Section 901, permits a credit for foreign income taxes paid, right? It, it, it's not a credit for foreign income taxes paid on foreign income. And I think that's an important point that section 901 itself, the statute doesn't have any kind of nexus requirement or limitation to it. Um, section 904 does. So section 904 historically has served the purpose of ensuring that the foreign tax credit is limited to a credit 
against U.S. taxes imposed on foreign source income. That's that's in effect a kind of nexus rule, um, but it has operated in different ways over many decades. Uh, we basket income and taxes so that uh, cross crediting is permitted. Uh, taxes on one kind of income may be credited against foreign source income uh, that is unrelated to those taxes, but with limitations. And, and over time, Congress has, has had different views about what, what kinds of limitations are appropriate and what kinds are not. And, and those views have, have, have ebbed and flowed over time. Um, and so I, I think one way of answering your question, Steve, is there's always been a kind of nexus concept, at least U.S. versus not U.S., right, under 904. But the introduction of a, like a strict jurisdictional nexus requirement in 901 is, is new. And so what, what exactly do the proposed regs do in that regard? Yeah, in the 901 context, uh, they, they basically require there to be a jurisdictional nexus between uh, the jurisdiction imposing the tax and activities uh, of the taxpayer uh, sort of related to the income that, that's being earned. And the rules depend on whether the tax is being imposed on a resident uh, of the jurisdiction um, from, from the perspective of the jurisdiction or whether uh, the tax is being imposed on income flows coming out of the jurisdiction. Uh, and so with respect to taxes imposed on a resident, uh, those taxes need to be with respect to activities undertaken by the taxpayer in the jurisdiction they have to follow arm's length uh, transfer pricing and they can't be imposed based on a, a factor as Lauren was saying, like uh, the number or share of customers that the multinational has in the jurisdiction or uh, number of users. They can't be imposed on destination type principles, it has to be activity type principles. Um, and then with respect to income flows, uh, the foreign jurisdiction has to have sourcing rules that look like the U.S. Uh, sourcing rules. And so with respect to services, for example, um, uh, a, a tax would meet the jurisdictional nexus requirement if it's imposed on income from services performed within the jurisdiction but not if it's imposed on uh, income from services uh, performed outside of the jurisdiction. So to the, to the uh, outside observer, <laughs> and I would consider myself one of those, it, this sounds a lot like it's aimed right at the digital services taxes that, that we are starting to see crop up in, in proposed form in, in, in some of the European countries. Is that a fair assessment? That is a fair assessment, more or less. I, I think the regulations make an effort not to be so narrow. Um, and 
they refer generically to novel extraterritorial taxes. Um, so no specific reference to digital service taxes, but the examples do bring into mind um, you know, the work that the OECD is doing, uh, particularly with regard to pillar one and, and the amount A, this residual that is meant to be distributed amongst um, countries in which you have the prohibited activity. <laughs> so based on, you know, customers that you're reaching or advertising revenue that you're generating or particular markets, so on and so forth. Um, but I think to go back to your earlier point, Rocco, regarding Section 901, the statute, and, and bringing in this concept of jurisdictional nexus, I really do think that's an interesting point. And, you know, it really begs the question whether or not such an articulation of a, a requirement in the regulations is even valid at this point because you know there are no I just did a quick check at 901 and there you know there's no kind of catch-all anti-abuse 901q provision that lets uh, Treasury kind of uh, have a little bit more leeway with regard to how it interprets the statute so that's an interesting point to uh, to consider as we go forward no no express delegation to to write re whatever regs they want yeah, the, the regulations from the 1980s around what it means to be an, a tax and an income tax are essentially based on case law that was developed over decades, um, uh, maybe starting with a case called Biddle, um, which is typically cited for the proposition that um, uh, the taxpayer permitted to claim a foreign tax credit is the taxpayer that is legally liable for the tax, the technical taxpayer, not um, the person who bears the incidence of the tax, where that that's different. Um, but there's some dicta in Biddle that talks about uh, predominant character of uh, taxes in the, in the US sense, and that was carried forward into subsequent case law and ultimately the regulations. Um, and, and I would say that that case law is, is silent on questions of nexus. And so uh, if, if the UK wishes to impose an income tax on a taxpayer that has activities in Ireland um, and is able to administer and enforce that tax, it has the power to, to do so. Um, I think it would be very hard if one went through the case law and the regulations before these proposed regulations to conclude that you know such a tax was not an income tax in in the U.S. sense as that has been understood over the decades. Um, and the Section 904 limitation, at least the current limitation, wouldn't wouldn't limit. Uh, uh, foreign tax credit with respect to that tax because the tax would effectively be matched. The tax imposed by the UK would be tax uh, would be matched to the income earned in Ireland. And and so, I I do think it it's interesting to go back to the statute and think about not just the words of the statute but how they fit in with the foreign tax credit scheme. How 901 fits in with with 904. Mm -hmm. Rocco, one of the things you mentioned earlier was uh, that there that in making the determination of whether or not a foreign levy is a 
a foreign income tax for, for 901 purposes, the regs effectively import the notion that it's an income tax if it looks like our income tax. Um, and that seems that seems freighted with all kinds of uh, implications. Uh, so I, I'm just wondering what what you think about that sort of self-reflective notion. It's a, it's America first, but for <laughs> but for <laughs> foreign foreign tax credits, <laughs> it's only yeah. an income tax if it looks like ours. <laughs> yeah, I. So that's always been a soft element of the law, or at least since Biddle, it's been a soft element of the law. We we know what an income tax looks like. The thing that the U.S. imposes is an income tax, and we we will tend to measure uh, taxes imposed by other jurisdictions against the U.S. income tax. And and I have to say, conceptually, that makes some sense because after all, the purpose of the foreign tax credit is to relieve double taxation of the same income. And so if a if a foreign tax looks very different from the US tax, um, and especially if the foreign tax is a uh, like a transactional tax that is likely to be passed on to someone other than the technical taxpayer, right? So like a VAT or a consumption tax then there isn't real economic double taxation and, and we, shouldn't, we shouldn't provide a credit for that. I think the historical uh, policy would point in that direction. But the difference between that history and, and current law versus the proposed regulations is that the proposed regulations apply these principles, the uh, uh, realization, gross receipts, and especially net income on a strict basis. And so they're not really looking to the predominant character um, of, the, of the foreign tax or the likelihood in general that the tax reaches net income. They're, they're asking questions like, well, is interest permitted as a deduction? And if it's not, then are the do the restrictions look like our uh, restrictions on the deductibility of interest. And so if a jurisdiction had rules like R163J and R385 principles, that would be okay. But if they had different principles for limiting uh, the deductibility of interest, maybe that's not okay because that tax uh, may not meet the net income uh, requirement in the proposed regulations, and and if you spin that through, you know, all of the complexities of of the U.S. tax law, uh, I I think it's a little bit hard to swallow from a policy perspective because uh, when Lauren was was on the Hill uh, making policy decisions, design decisions around uh, the domestic tax base, um, she probably didn't think about the implications that might have on 901 and the creditability of foreign taxes. And, and I think rightly so, the, the two shouldn't be uh, intertwined uh, so tightly. And that, I mean, one thing, Lauren, that one of our topics that we've covered before comes to mind in thinking about this, the notion that that these regulations 
constrain the universe of what is a creditable foreign tax to only those that have some kind of net income feature brings to mind the fact that we have a gross income tax in the beat now. So how, how, does, that, how does that fit into the picture? Well, um, it makes our traditional disdain for uh, gross basis taxes a little bit less uh, strong, I would say, you know, we, we, we've, we've caved somewhat in that regard, but it also means that, you know, other countries that impose a, a beat like tax, that it will be credible, creditable, as long as we have a beat. Um, and, you know, at this point, there have been calls in the OECD context for, for modifications of the beat insofar as it interacts with the income inclusion rule. And so, you know, it, all of these things are intertwined on some level. I do, I do see that we maybe, you know, with the, with the enactment of guilty and with the enactment of beat, and then the kind of, it, at first they were novel concepts um, that created, I would say, significant shockwaves in the, in the community with regard to, this is not really, you know, what we've done before hadn't really, been enacted they had, proposals had been floated but now this was law and the the you know flip side of that was that once people got over the shock there was also a recognition that maybe this is not such a bad idea um and so the proliferation of these kinds of concepts and especially with regard to the beat might be expected um and so you know on one hand the policy behind these these proposed regs is, is good such that to the extent, you know, U.S. taxpayers are subjected to a beat-like regime in another country, those taxes would be creditable. On the other hand, these rules are subject to modification, um, some might say weakening, when they are pulled into an international context and adopted on kind of a, a larger scale. So it's, it's two sides of, two very interesting and different sides of one coin. Yeah, I think the beat is a good example because as you say, if if Canada adopted the beat, then we would say, well, that that's fine. That's consistent with the net income requirement to just deny deductions in some cases for <laughs> related party payments um, because we do it. Uh, so therefore it's become an international standard and, and uh, uh, sort of categorically part of an income tax. Um, but if they adopted something a little bit different, um, then then you have some real questions. And so what if their beat was at a lower rate, but included COGS, you know, or included um, uh, fees for services, uh, you know, head office type services that could be priced at cost and, and whatnot. Well, suddenly that that doesn't look like our beat anymore. Does that mean that 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 you know the Canadian corporate income tax would not be creditable anymore for anyone, not just taxpayers who were subject to the Canadian modified beat, but but for anybody because Steve, as you say, the unit of analysis is the levy, and in that case, the the income tax, the corporate net income tax, would be yep. the levy. Um, but, so is that really how we want the rules to to work as a technical matter? 
especially when someone else's articulation of the beat might be more conceptually sound, um, you know, so it's, it's a... Right, so if they, if they come up with a better beat, <laughs> do taxpayers pay the price by having their tax credits disallowed? And it is, it, I mean, it, it, right, it sounds like it's kind of an all or nothing determination once, once there's a significant enough departure. departure. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's an all or nothing determination at the level of the levy. And we really, unlike your, and uh, consistent with your introduction, we would need the regs in front of us, I think, to go through the rules for what is a levy. And, and they've been changed with that in mind. And so, for example, uh, withholding taxes are separate levies, um, you know, to the extent they're imposed on separate categories of income. A withholding tax on dividends is separate from a withholding tax on interest, separate from a withholding tax on royalties, um, exactly for the reason you said, Steve, that, that this is an all or nothing test. And so there's an effort in the proposed regulations to narrow the unit of analysis, as it were, um, to, to prevent sort of cliff effects uh, for taxpayers that aren't really being implicated by the extraterritorial part of, of uh, the taxing rule. So this seems like it's going to be a fairly um, a consequential set of, this is a fairly consequential set of, of proposed regulations. What can we expect in terms of the uh, the, the tenor and, and number of, of comments to, to, to the Treasury will see on these on these regs. Yeah, I think it's really important to look at these regulations not as technical regulations. They're, they're not like the kinds of regulations that have been issued over the past few years uh, implementing the beat and guilty, these, these new regimes. Um, those are very important regulations, of course, but but for the most part, they're technical regulations. They're they're an effort by the technicians at the IRS and Treasury to implement uh, law that has lots of gaps in it, right? That requires a lot of uh, regulatory implementation. These proposed regulations are not really technical in nature. They just chart a different policy course. Right under 901, and and we haven't talked very much about 903, the in lieu of um, foreign tax credit. So, so I think the normal notice and comment process is important with respect to these regulations, and I would expect taxpayers or industry groups that are affected uh, to to comment on the regulations. But I think there will also be a high level policy engagement with respect to the regulations that's as important or even more important than the normal regulatory notice and comment process. Because the, the, the regulations, while they are regulations, there's almost like a legislative nature or character to them because they, they are taking a statute, 901 that, and 903, that are, have been unchanged for for years in relevant respects. And, and the regulations say, well, you know, we were interpreting the statute to say this. And now, because circumstances have changed in the world, we propose to interpret it in a very new way. And, and for that reason, I think you'll see a lot of 
high level engagement. And, and Lauren, one important overview here, or one, one important overlay is that, is that not only do we have these regulations that are now st outstanding and, and in their comment process, but we have a, an administration that's in transition. So how does that uh, sort of affect the calculus and how should taxpayers who wanna think about making comments think about that, that transition? Well, I would say first and foremost, if, if they're interested in making comments, they should do so. Um, the deadline is in February and whether or not um, there's a deputy assistant uh, secretary for tax policy, international tax policy at treasury, the comments still need to be in by the deadline. So that is your first order of priority. Um, and then after that, you know, we there will be a bit of a lag, which is normal um, until some of these policy positions are filled. Um, no one really knows how long that will be. Depends on the administration. Um, and so once that person is is installed, then you know the conversations will probably probably begin. Uh, in earnest. I also think that taxpayers should consider um, or look at this from a kind of a, an overarching viewpoint. So yes, we have domestic regulations um, that, that need comment, uh, but these are, to Rocco's point, these regulations are very different in terms of, of, of content and implication. And so we have really kind of a, a mixing of domestic tax policy and pulling in some concepts that are happening at the OECD level, happening um, in other countries, treaty partners and not. Um, and so we have, there will be implications that are in these domestic rules that have kind of far reaching impacts and vice versa. And so it's important to think about kind of the big picture, the bigger picture uh, with regard to what is, is going on uh, with the digital work at the OECD level. Um, as well as some of these unilateral digital taxes. And some of that involves, you know, kind of prognostication in terms of timeline and likelihood of um, implementation and what it will look like. But it's important to keep all of these things in mind. Yeah, and, and uh, I mean, I think Rocco, when we discussed this earlier, you sort of said there's there's a kind of messaging function to to these regs. and and. What, what, what does that mean? So to, who, to whom is Treasury sending messages with these regs? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think first and foremost, uh, you know, when, when the folks at Treasury and IRS propose regulations, uh, they don't do it as a trial balloon, right? That, that um, you know, the, these regulations had a lot of work put into them. And I think the policymakers who signed off on these regulations uh, believe that they are good policy and, and uh, fair interpretation of the statute and, and in the interests of, of the U.S. And, and, uh, and, and so I, I think it's, it's not appropriate to focus exclusively on messaging, right? This is real law that they are trying to make. Uh, but it's more fun to talk about messaging <laughs> right. in this environment, this kind of international tax gossip. And uh, as Lauren noted earlier, there's a, you know, and, and you noted the big project at the OECD on uh, the tax implication of digitization. And uh, many countries are considering or have imposed uh, 
digital services taxes or other gross basis taxes that are aimed at uh, mostly uh, U.S. Uh, digital companies. Um, and I think that's a very important context for these regulations. Uh, it's not um, a secret that the U.S. Treasury Department and this administration uh, doesn't think those taxes are good policy and doesn't think those taxes are appropriate. They view those taxes as um, discriminatory taxes. You know, the thresholds are so high uh, and uh, the nature of reality <laughs> uh, basically dictates that those taxes are only imposed um, or predominantly imposed on a handful of large U.S. companies. And that has has struck the this U.S. Treasury and this administration as un, unfair. Um, and so I think one target for the messaging is those trading partners of the United States and, and saying, um, you know, to the extent that uh, you believe that these taxes are without cost because they'll just be absorbed by the U.S. fisc under our foreign tax credit rules, um, you're mistaken in, in that impression. And that that's an interesting message because, of course, it's not clear, I think, that DSTs, depending on their design, would be creditable under current law. Um, they certainly are not net income taxes, but they may be in lieu of taxes under Section 903, depending on how they're designed and what they may be a substitute for. Uh, but it's not altogether clear that they're all creditable taxes. Um, but I, I do think the, they certainly would not be creditable if the proposed regulations were finalized. And so I think part of the messaging is to our trading partners. Um, another target for the messaging may be the U.S. multinational community. And just to make sure that the U.S. multinational community is paying attention to what's happening at the OECD and what's happening generally, and that uh, they uh, partner with and are supportive of the efforts of, of the U.S. Treasury to try to, to, to moderate, uh, you know, the behavior of other countries. And maybe the notion is to the extent that the DSTs and other extraterritorial taxes are shared cost between U.S. multinationals and the U.S. FISC, um, that, that each of those parties has a stake in the outcome of these discussions and, and might be more inclined to constructively engage. So, so proposed regulations as a call to arms. <laughs> <laughs> a, call, a call to, to brotherhood, right? Uh, sure. Against these inappropriate taxes. Always count on the litigator to come up with some more analogy. Right. <laughs> uh, okay, so last word. Do these regulations, these regulations on creditability, are they, are they finalized as they exist in their proposed form? Yes or no? Lauren? Just one word? Just one word? Yeah, just one word. No. Rocco? <laughs> no, but only after significant engagement uh, by the U.S. multinational community in the comment process and only after 
we see what kind of progress is made, um, whether at the OECD or more generally with respect to these difficult policy issues around uh, taxing uh, digital companies and other companies that can access markets without without significant presence. So it, it if everybody just didn't act, they could be finalized as proposed. But I, I think, you but know, Lauren's response and my response is sort of predicated on, uh, you know, commentators and other stakeholders reacting in accordance with their interests. Yes. Rocco said what I couldn't since you <laughs> me the one word. But no, yeah, it, it, without any engagement, sure, why not? It, it's a signal to Treasury that nobody really finds, takes any issue with these with the proposed rules and they're fine the way they are. Excellent. Well, this was super interesting. Thanks for coming on today, Rocco. And thank you as always, Lauren. Uh, we encourage everyone to uh, subscribe and listen to Tax Break. If you have any questions or comments or want to make a suggestion for a future podcast topic, please shoot us an email at podcasts at milchev.com. That's podcasts, plural, at M-I-L-C-H-E-V.com. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. Thanks, Rocco. Thank you both. Mm -hmm.